The Edwin Smith Papyrus. Hippocrates. Aurelius Celsus. Galen. Archigenes. Claudius Galenus. Percival Park. Jean Godinot. Theodore Bavarian. Marie Curie. Ludwig Calvert. Janet Lane Clayton. Austin Hill. Richard Nixon. Harold Zura Hoffman. Chris Sweeney. Chris Hopkins. What do they all have in common? They all loved talking oncology. Hello, I'm Amy Tay, and I'm a radiation oncologist at the Icon Cancer Centre, New South Wales, and Sydney Adventist Hospital. Welcome to another podcast from the team at Talking Medicine, where the aim is to help doctors develop a deeper understanding of the literature to ensure we apply the right evidence to the right patient. And joining me today is the host of Talking Urology podcast, Joseph Fischer. Thanks, Amy. It's a pleasure to be here. And I'm excited about this practice-changing study we are going to discuss today, which is the role of treating the primary prostate in patients with metastatic disease. And joining us to help explore this field is the man himself and one of the key investigators of Stampede, Professor Nick James. We will get right into it after a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is proudly supported with an educational grant from Janssen Oncology. So thank you to Janssen, who made these podcasts possible. This podcast is a bit of a long one, but when Amy chatted to Nick James, he had so many gems, it was impossible to leave too many of them out. So let's jump straight into it. Traditionally, once a cancer has metastasized, the benefit of treatment to the primary with surgery or radiotherapy was thought to be limited. The disease is systemic, so the treatment ought to be systemic too. The role of radiotherapy in this metastatic setting has been to palliate symptoms, to take away pain, to stop bleeding, but never thought to affect the overall progress of the disease or extend survival. Over the years, this idea has been challenged in metastatic prostate cancer. Retrospective studies have suggested a survival benefit from treating the primary, even when the disease is metastasized. In 2018, the results of two prospective studies on this subject were reported, the Horrid study and the Stampede study. The Horrid study looked at 432 prostate cancer patients with bone metastases detected on bone scans. Patients either received androgen deprivation therapy alone or had prostate radiotherapy added to the hormone therapy. In this trial, no survival benefit was seen with the addition of prostate radiotherapy. It was a negative trial. However, of interest, when a subgroup analysis was done on patients with only four or less bone metastases, there was a trend suggesting possible survival benefit from radiotherapy in this group with low-volume metastases, but the trend did not reach statistical significance. But then everything changed on 21st of October 2018 when The Lancet published the first prospective trial showing a clear survival benefit in irradiating the prostate in the setting of low-volume metastatic prostate cancer. This is the finding from the arm H of the Stampede trial. The Stampede is a large multi-arm trial structure with its different arms assessing the effects of different agents in the treatment of locally advanced and metastatic prostate cancer. The Stampede Arm H specifically looked at the effects of radiating the prostate in a metastatic setting. Its results were published in this paper titled Radiotherapy to the Primary Tumour for Newly Diagnosed Metastatic Prostate Cancer, a Randomised Control Phase 3 Trial. Patients were randomised to either standard of care with systemic therapy alone or systemic therapy and prostate radiotherapy. This study included 2,061 men from UK and Switzerland who were newly diagnosed with metastatic prostate cancer based on CT, MRI and bone scan imaging between 2013 to 2016 intended for long-term androgen deprivation therapy. Half were randomised to receiving prostate radiotherapy. The median age was 68 and median PSA 97 nanograms per mil. 
The median follow-up was 37 months. The primary endpoint was overall survival. Two pre-specified subgroup analyses tested the effects of prostate radiotherapy by baseline metastatic burden. It's important to remember that at the commencement of this trial arm in 2013, the standard of care for metastatic prostate cancer was androgen deprivation alone. From 2015 until the close of ARM-H in 2016, six cycles of docetaxel was added to androgen deprivation therapy as the standard systemic treatment for metastatic prostate cancer following the publication of the Stampede ARM-C results in 2015, which had shown docetaxel improving survival when added to hormone therapy in metastatic prostate cancer. And obviously we also had the charted study which had confirmed that. So coming back to our Stampede ARM-H radiotherapy study, it was found that patients with low-volume metastases who had prostate radiotherapy had improved survival. At three years from diagnosis, the proportion of men who were still alive treated with systemic therapy alone was 73%. This is compared to 81% in those who also had prostate radiotherapy. As mentioned, this finding was based on a pre-planned subgroup analysis of the 819 men with low-volume metastases. Of note, this result does not apply to the other 1,120 men with high-volume metastases. Can I just touch on this issue of volume of metastases that was defined based on that used in the charted study by Sweeney and colleagues in 2015? High-volume metastases was defined as those with four or more bone metastases, with one or more outside the vertebral bodies or pelvis, or visceral metastases, or both, assessed on bone scan and CT or MRI. All other patients were considered to have low metastatic burden. Yes, so for the first time, we have a prospective phase 3 randomized controlled study showing that even in the setting of metastatic prostate cancer, as long as the patients had low-volume metastases, local radiotherapy to the prostate can improve overall survival. Toxicity was low and radiotherapy well-tolerated. Prostate radiotherapy was either treated to 36 gray in 6 fractions, that is only 6 treatments just once a week, or 55 gray in 20 fractions, which is daily over four weeks. Overall, about one-third of patients reported no change at all in their urinary symptoms during radiotherapy, and nearly half reported no bowel toxicity. Only 5% reported grade 3 or 4 toxicity during the treatment. Those who received the weekly treatment experienced fewer side effects. After treatment, only 4% reported grade 3 or 4 late toxicity. Now, Amy, this finding has been practice-changing. Since the publication of this study, the NCCN guidelines has been updated to include prostate radiotherapy as a standard treatment option in addition to ADT in men with low-volume metastatic prostate cancer. So, Amy, let's get to the really exciting bit. In our eternal quest to bring the literature to life, what have you been up to recently? To gain further insight into this study, it was my privilege to interview one of the key investigators of this Stampede H trial, Professor Nick James. Professor James, how did the idea for this study come about? So the idea, actually, I have to credit Chris Parker with this, who's a radiation oncologist at the Royal Marsden. The UK has a, a National Cancer Research Institute. He and I were both members of the prostate group at the time. And uh, there was a lot of interest in asking this question, just in general terms, because in kidney cancer, we obviously are not unrelated cancer, there's pretty good evidence in the interferon era that taking the primary out affects the outcome in terms of survival. So there's underpinning animal data to support this. So the idea was kicked around for a while. And actually, in the meantime, Horad 
started trying to ask, answer the same question, we were concerned that they would end up with an underpowered answer, which actually did turn out to be the case. And so we thought, well, there's no harm in in having two trials trying to answer the same question, because obviously you can do a pooled analysis at the end, which which we've actually published now as well. The meta-analysis Professor James referred to is the stopgap systemic review and meta-analysis published by Bedet et al. in July 2019 in the European Urology. This reported a pooled analysis of the Horad and Stampede H studies, looking at the 2,126 men with metastatic prostate cancer who had ADT only compared to ADT and radiotherapy. Patients who received docetaxel were not included here. Like the Stampede trial, whilst no survival benefit was seen with addition of radiotherapy in the group as a whole, a 7% survival benefit was seen with the addition of prostate radiotherapy at three years in the low-volume metastatic group. As the HORRID trial only looked at bone metastases and did not have information on nodal or visceral metastases, the low-volume metastases in this case was defined as four or fewer bone metastases. Professor James, may I ask, what was the reason for deciding upon the charted criteria to define high and low volume metastases in the Stampede H trial? We already had the hypothesis around the volume before the HORAD data was published. All of the scans were centrally reviewed, and we started that process before the HORAD data was published. So I know we had a lot of debates generated as to whether this was a sort of post hoc analysis or a pre-planned analysis. Our view is that it's pre-planned. We didn't know any results and we got all the scans in centrally and reviewed them before we did any analysis. So it wasn't something that we went dredging through the data looking for an association after we had a negative trial. We planned to do it. It turns out to be a pretty sharp cutoff. So uh, once you got above the charted cut point, there's really very little evidence of any effect on any outcomes in the high volume disease. So there's a modest effect on time to failure. There's absolutely no effect whatever on overall survival, whereas there's a big effect on time to failure in the low burden patients, obviously translating into a 20, you know, yeah, a very big survival effect, bigger than the effect we saw with docetaxel. So the cut point that we chose turns out to work pretty well, actually. That has certainly given us a great insight into how the burden of metastatic disease affects things and the importance of those four or more bone metastases, with one needing to be outside of the spinal pelvis and the presence of visceral metastases. With regards to the radiotherapy dose, how was that decided upon? So it was around 2011 we started designing this. So in 2011, a lot of UK centres, but by no means all UK centres, had IMRT and IGRT capability, but they all had 3D conformal capability. We figured that we could go to 74 in 37 using conformal things, but, uh, doses, but we thought, well, these are men with a relatively short life expectancy, potentially. Do we really want to put them through, you know, 37 fractions of radiotherapy? So we went and looked back at the old UK RT01 trial, which compared 64 in 32 with uh, the 37 fraction regimen. And the results of that are quite interesting because that trial has never shown a survival advantage for the higher dose. It's only ever shown a PSA advantage in favor of the higher dose. And in fact, no other trial of dose escalation in prostate cancer has ever shown a survival advantage either. So we decided there was no clear evidence in escalating dose above 64 and 32 carried any survival benefit. So we then decided that actually even 64 and 32 was still quite a lot of fractions and we'd used 
what is actually a very widely used fractionation scheme in the UK, and I suspect it in Australia as well, which is 55 and 20, which is a broadly equivalent dose to 64 and 32 on the grounds that we thought uh, for a higher dose than that, nobody's ever shown a survival advantage to it. So with 55 and 20, we had something that we thought was more acceptable. It's four weeks instead of you know, seven or whatever for a we thought enough dose and the 36 in 6 was a schedule that the Marsden was using and which depending on how you do alpha betas came out as broadly equivalent to 55 in 20 and we thought well once a week for six weeks is potentially quite convenient for patients it turned out that about 50 percent of patients were getting 55 and 20 and about 50 percent were getting 36 and 36 essentially split by clinician so it wasn't that same clinician was giving one patient one fractionation and another patient a different fractionation it was clinicians like myself were just picking a fractionation using the same one all the way through irrespective of disease burden both fractionations work equally well as far as we can tell for non-radiation oncology listeners the biological impact of radiation on a cell type not only depends on the total dose given by the end of the treatment but it is also dependent on the strength of the dose given at each treatment or dose per fraction when we give a stronger dose per treatment we generally do not need to give as much total dose to achieve the same biological effect. There is a formula that is used to calculate biological equivalence, and for prostate cancer, as discussed above, 64 gray in 32 treatments is thought to be equivalent to 55 gray in 20 treatments, which is also thought to be equivalent to 36 gray in 6 treatments. Back to the study. The study was designed in 2011. Now that the results are analyzed, which of the two treatment schedules above would you now favor in your day-to-day clinical practice in this low-volume metastatic setting? What we've chosen to do is, just coming back to this issue around dose, now everybody has IMRT, for one, and for two, now that the CHIP results came out showing that 60 and 20 was extremely well tolerated and and actually, to be honest, 60 in 20 with IMRT is probably less toxic than 55 in 20 with conformal radiotherapy. So actually, we're using 60 in 20 by kind of mixing our own results with the CHIP results. For the listeners, the CHIP trial was published in 2016 in the Lancet Oncology by Denali et al., comparing conventional radiotherapy of 74 gray in 37 daily fractions over seven and a half weeks versus hypofractionated high-dose intensity modulated radiotherapy over just four weeks for localized prostate cancer treated with curative intent. That study showed that at five years, the four-week-only treatment of 60 gray in 20 fractions was not inferior to the seven-and-a-half-weeks treatment, and toxicity rates were also very low, with only 12% reporting grade 2 or greater toxicity. Professor James, I have a 68-year-old patient with PSMA PET, CT, and bone scan showing metastases in the pelvic nodes and a solitary spot in the T-spine. This patient would be considered as having low-volume metastases by chartered criteria. Now that we have shown treating the bulk of tumor cells within the prostate can improve survival in low volume setting, could I extrapolate and extend my radiotherapy field to encompass the pelvic nodes and also treat the T-spine metastasis with stereotactic radiotherapy? 
or should I follow the current available evidence and treat just the prostate alone? Well, I'll tell you what we're planning to do in the next arm of the trial, because that kind of answers your question. We know that treating yeah, the biggest lump of cancer, if you like, impacts on survival. Of course, it's technically feasible to treat node positive disease by extending the field around the nodes and uh, and probably to you know zap the Mets with Sabre as well. So one way of looking at it is, well, if you treated 95% of the disease and you get a survival advantage, if you treated 100% of the visible disease, would you get a bigger survival advantage? And I guess the answer is maybe you will, maybe you won't. I mean, you simply don't know. It may be that um, the marginal benefit from doing the extra treatment actually is you know, frequently going to be outweighed by the extra toxicity that you impose on the patient. Now, um, flipping it the other way around, I've got anecdotes, and I'm sure lots of other people do as well, where I've done exactly what you just described, where I've treated the pelvic nodes, I've zapped the METs, and then two years later, they've got an undetectable PSA and I've stopped their ADT. So I certainly do have patients who appear to be long-term in remission off treatment, having had radical treatment, if you like, of low-volume metastatic disease. Now, you, of course, remember the anecdotes that go well, and you forget the anecdotes that got lots of toxicity and then relapse straight away. So you can only resolve whether that's the right thing to do by doing a trial. So that's essentially exactly what we're proposing to do, is to randomize treatment to the primary only versus treatment to the primary plus the rest of the disease. So that would include the nodes, include the METs, and up to a cap of five. We picked five as the cap because we've done a sensitivity analysis on which numbers of METs benefit the most. And essentially, one benefits more than two, benefits more than three. And by four, it appears to be pretty neutral. By five, there's definitely no benefit in treating the primary only. Now, just coming back to what I was just saying, yeah, if you, in this addition to treating the primary, treated those five METs, there might be benefit. The SABRE-COMET trial which you're probably familiar with, treated up to five phase two trials. So basically, the next trial will permit up to five, but we will stratify the analysis in advance this time by one to three versus four and five to see whether the benefit peters out uh, or where the benefit peters out, if you like, if there is benefit. I've no doubt from my own anecdotal experience that some of those patients will get long-term remissions from it. Now, whether in the long run they're going to do any better survival wise than the ones that you just treat the primary i don't know obviously you need a trial to find out the line we're going to take with the patients in the patient information sheet is is kind of along the lines of what i just said to you which is that you know you're definitely adding toxicity you may or may not be adding benefit and anyway all of the mets are being treated by by drugs as well it may well be that you may be able to alter the pattern of relapse but you may not ultimately alter the survival very much so we think it's a, a viable question for a trial. In fact, we've just been funded to do it. So we're now setting that up. The Stampede is a phenomenal trial infrastructure and continues to try to answer the next most pressing questions in the management of newly diagnosed metastatic prostate cancer. Professor James, as the current Stampede-H trial has adapted to the advancement in systemic therapy by introducing docetaxel in the standard arm, how will the new study take into account all the new systemic options we now have available? Would there be concerns about their interactions with radiotherapy? The later patients in the trial had docetaxel as part of the, their treatment because we already knew the docetaxel results. So the order we did it was we did the docetaxel first, followed by the radiotherapy. And the, there wasn't any evidence of any issues with delivering the radiotherapy 
post-dose ataxol. So we're quite happy that's safe. Now, you're right, down the line, if we start irradiating bigger chunks of marrow by doing pelvic nodes and all the rest of it, you may interfere with subsequent marrow function. And that's obviously one of the things to look at. The other thing is that in the the new version of the trial, we will stratify the randomization by whether patients are getting docetaxel or not. We'll also permit abiraterone or enzalutamide or apalutamide were these things to be available. They're not currently available in the UK in this setting. So we'll have three groups within the trial. We'll have those getting ADT only. We'll have those getting ADT plus docetaxel. And we'll have those getting ADT plus one of the AR targeting therapies. Because we'll stratify the randomization, we'll end up with equal numbers with and without metastasis-directed therapy. The other thing that we're hoping to do with this, so it's quite timely in terms of doing an Australian interview, is that ANZUP are planning to run, essentially run that randomization of the Stampede trial in Australia and New Zealand. We're very excited about that. It would certainly be most exciting for us in Australia if we could be part of this new trial. In the STEMPH study, volume of metastases was assessed and defined based on bone scan, CT and MRI. Will it be the same in the new study or will new imaging modalities such as PSMA PET scans be looked at? One of the things that obviously comes up as an issue is how you handle things like PSMA PET imaging. So the situation in the UK is that we're not allowed to use PET imaging as part of staging. We can only use it at relapse and mostly we have choline PET, not PSMA at the moment that situation may change. Whereas obviously in Australia, you've got much, much more liberal access to it, haven't you? How we're planning to deal with it is that the imaging eligibility will be defined on CT and bone scan. And if you do a PSMA PET scan as well, we'll stratify the randomization by whether you're going to do a PSMA PET or not. Because what we expect we'll find is that somebody who's got two METs on their bone scan and CT will have, you know, another five lymph node METs visible on their PET scan. So what we're saying is all you're doing is treating the most visible metastases. We, you know, we know almost certainly you're not treating all of the metastases. So the fact that the PET scan now shows additional METs doesn't make the patient ineligible it means that you're, you're treating the smaller METs with the systemic therapy, not with the radiotherapy, that's all. So you're boosting the treatment to the bulkiest sites of disease is how we're thinking we're going to be wording this in the information sheet. And in the context of does it make sense treating oligometastatic disease, the label starts to make no sense then. Yeah, we, we know we're not treating oligometastatic disease, we're just treating the most visible disease. We think we're going to have to think carefully about the wording and how we sell this both to clinicians and to patients. It may well turn out that the, yeah, the, the, the disease that shows up on the pet is mostly in the pelvic nodes and you can irradiate it. But by collecting that data, we'll find out whether it matters or not. It looks like this new study will not only give us data to guide management, but will also allow us to learn more about interactions between systemic and local therapies and give us further insights into how to apply our different imaging modalities. With the current published study, where only the prostate is treated, one of the things I was surprised to see was the lack of local control advantage. That's right. The rate of local control is 42% without radiotherapy versus 44% with radiotherapy. I've always thought one of the reasons for giving radiotherapy to the prostate was to prevent or reduce local symptoms. Is it because it is just too early, given current median follow-up is only 37 months on this trial, for us to see the local control advantages of radiotherapy? The current rate of local failure is quite low, and our impression is that mostly you start getting the nasty problems, you know, catheter problems and, you know, hydronephrosis, all these things 
hematuria once you run out of systemic therapies that work. So we've ended up reporting this because we had so many patients, we hit the event counts relatively early. At the moment, you're right, we don't see a difference. Professor James, what do you think is the biggest mistake doctors make when interpreting this current Stampede H study? The biggest mistake that people seem to be making is to say that they don't believe our data. We think the data are robust. It's been through peer review in The Lancet, who published it with an editorial saying it was robust. So we think to say, you know, as some groups are doing, that this is a post hoc analysis that is exploratory only, is to make a big statistical error and we think is depriving patients of a simple, effective treatment that will prolong their survival. So I think that is the biggest mistake you can make. The area that is more debatable is whether you can say, well, is to take the opposite view and say, we completely believe that treating the primary improves survival, but rather than doing it with radiotherapy, you can do it with surgery. We know that people are making that extrapolation, and essentially what we're, we're hoping to deal with that within the next round of Stampede by saying, well, if you believe that, just do the surgery, not the radiotherapy, and we'll then test whether irradiating the metastases helps or not in that setting. So we're kind of agnostic on that. My gut feeling is, is that for most patients, you're not going to offer them surgery anyway because they're too old or unfit or the tumour looks too bulky. But we know it's technically feasible to do for a proportion of them. Whether you should do it, I think, remains unknown. So I wouldn't want to call it a mistake, but I think it's got a lower evidence base to support it. So a little warning shot to our surgical colleagues about extrapolating the data, but it sounds like it is a question that will soon be answered. Sorry, Amy, what was that? I I couldn't hear you over the sound of my diathermy cutting out this prostate in a patient with oligometastatic disease. (laughs) Surgeons. But there are several other trials, such as the PEACE-1 trial, SWOG-1802, SIMCAP, trombone, RAMP trials, which are looking at surgery or radiotherapy to the prostate in this metastatic setting. We look forward to the reporting of the findings, which will add further to our knowledge in the management of prostate cancer, even when it has metastasized. I thank Professor James very much for generously giving us his time, and I hope you too, as I have, benefited from Professor James's valuable insights. All right, Amy, can you sum it up for us now with the top five points you've mentioned so far? As we have learned, we now have a prospective phase three randomized control trial showing that even in the setting of metastatic prostate cancer, as long as the patients have low volume metastases, local radiotherapy to the prostate, when added to systemic therapy, can improve overall survival. Toxicity is low and radiotherapy well tolerated. In the Stampede H trial, patients with low-volume metastases who benefited from prostate radiotherapy were patients who did not have visceral metastases and patients who had fewer than four bone metastases if they were beyond the spine and pelvis. Thus, patients with multiple bone metastases, as long as they're within the spine and pelvis, and patients with multiple nodal disease would still be considered as having low-volume metastases and benefited from prostate radiotherapy. Retrospective studies have shown benefit with treating the prostate with surgery in this metastatic setting too. Multiple prospective surgical trials are underway. We look forward to their publication. The next step now in progressing the management of metastatic prostate cancer, especially in this low-volume metastatic setting, now that we have established treating the bulkiest primary site of disease can improve survival, is to investigate if treating all visible disease, including the metastases, will further improve patient's survival. 
Fantastic summary, Amy. Thanks for having me along to discuss this amazing study, and I'm looking forward to those new studies on the horizon. Thanks, Joseph. Your hosts today on this Talking Oncology podcast have been Amy Tay and Joseph Ishia, with special guest Professor Nick James. The podcast was written by Amy Tay and Joseph Ishia, produced by Joseph Ishia and Carol Webb. This has been a Talking Medicine production and proudly brought to you by Janssen. This podcast was produced by Joseph Iskier and Kara Webb and made possible by the generous support of Janssen. Views and opinions expressed in this presentation are those of the presenters alone and are not necessarily reflective of the views and opinion of Janssen Silag Proprietary Limited or any employees thereof. This information is not medical advice and no decision relating to the management of any patient should be made with reliance on the information contained in this presentation. It's your responsibility to prescribe appropriate treatment in accordance with your clinical judgment and by reference to the appropriate Australian product information or other information supplied with the relevant product, including in relation to any indication, dosage and route of administration. So if you're still with us after that disclaimer... We hope you join us for other podcasts. This Talking Oncology podcast was proudly brought to you by Janssen.